Amen. Well, it's good to be with all of you today. Welcome again to RCC. I want to give a shout out to uh, Kay and Ron Blinkow and their life group, and they did all the decorations up here after a wedding yesterday, so they were here last night doing that. So uh, can we give them a hand? Uh, really appreciate them um, doing that for us. Well, if we haven't met before, my name is Tim Cargus, and I'm one of the pastors here. And if you were really hoping today to hear from Anthony, our lead pastor, and are disappointed to see me up here today, believe me, I'm just as disappointed. Um, I, I was really hoping to hear from Anthony today as well. And so I talked to him uh, on the phone earlier this week, and um, he said, you know, maybe God will do something really cool and heal me before Sunday. But at this point, we're still waiting on God. So if you're new with us, Anthony has been dealing with back pain for years, but in the last month, his back pain has gotten so bad that he has pain whether he is standing, sitting, or laying down. He literally doesn't have relief from it. And so what I want to do at the beginning is just spend a minute interceding for uh, our lead pastor, for Anthony. So what would it look like if we all just stopped what we're doing and just prayed right here for him all at once? So I want to spend a moment in individual prayer uh, for Anthony's healing, for his recovery, for his next steps, for his family, for, for his encouragement in the face of what is tremendously discouraging. Uh, he loves all of you, and it really kills him that he can't be here. And so what would happen if we all did that right now? Let's see. So, so on our own, let's pray for Anthony. God, you are the giver of life. You breathe life into Anthony. You know how he has been created. You formed every joint and sinew. You know the ways that his body has been formed and developed. And so I pray, God, that um, through your spirit, you'll find that area that needs to be healed and heal him. God, and we're going to be careful to give you the credit when that happens. And God, I, I, th I thank you that... Um, we can rely on you in all seasons and all circumstances, and you are faithful uh, regardless of what um, our minds tell us at times. And so, God, please, please heal him. God, I pray for his family and for uh, their journey through this as well, uh, for their sweet kids and for um, his wife as they navigate this. Um, please watch over them, um, maybe even bless them through this. God, I look forward to seeing Anthony up here and hearing about his journey uh, sometime soon. God, we pray all of this in your name. Amen. Well, thank you for, for doing that. One thing I want to encourage you to do is to continue to pray for Anthony. Uh, maybe mark it in your calendar, and every Monday at 10, you pray for him. Or every day at 2 p.m., maybe that's your time to pray for Anthony. But let's, uh, let's cover Anthony and his family in prayer. Um, so Anthony, he had already prepared a message for this week. And I read it, and it was so good. And I would love to say that I can deliver an Anthony message, but I can't. Um, so 
today, what I'm, I'm going to try to do is deliver the heart of Anthony's message, uh, but just using my own voice and throwing in some of my own thoughts and examples. But what I, I really wanted to honor the work that Anthony had put in uh, to this week and to this message series as we kick it off today. So, man, I don't, I don't know if you have felt this or not personally, but this seems like it's a really heavy season. There's a lot of people in our church that are dealing with really difficult, heavy things. There's, there's grief, uh, there's, there's tragedy, there's brokenness, there's loss and discouragement and anxiety, there's depression and disorders and disease, and for many it's been really hard. And, and sometimes the holiday season, it sort of accelerates this feeling of heaviness because in the holidays, there's unmet expectations, there's disappointment, we're, we're missing people maybe who aren't here, there's financial stress, there's physical stress. And so there's also a state of unrest all around us. There's so much hurt in the world, there's war and abuse and scandal. And man, we're really tired of it, right? We're weary people. And so this season, uh, Anthony was, was inspired to call this Advent series the weary world rejoices. And it's fitting, right? It's coming right out of a classic Christmas hymn, O Holy Night, a thrill of hope, the weary world rejoices. Now, I don't know about you, but um, hope does not feel very thrilling this year. It feels distant. So as we enter into this season there's one thing that unites all of us on the planet. Whether you believe in God or not, whether you love Christmas or not, every person deals with this. Every person wrestles with it. It's a struggle for 100% of humans everywhere. No one escapes the grasp of this. There's no way around it. Every person must go through it. No amount of money can make it go away. No amount of human power can eliminate it. It is, at times, an all-consuming force. What am I talking about? waiting. Every human being in the history of humanity has to deal with waiting. We wait in drive throughs We wait for a new episode of our favorite show to come out. We wait for the Huskers to eventually make a bowl game. We, we, wait, for, we wait at the DMV. So um, recently I had to get my vehicle renewed in Lincoln since uh, we lived there for about seven months and my plates were about to expire. So I went to the downtown DMV um, in Lincoln and I was really excited because when I got there, there was no line. But I showed up at the uh, place and the gal said, oh, we don't do vehicle registration here. And so they sent me to another location that's on West O. And driving there felt like I was driving halfway to Kearney. And this place had a short line. And so by the time I got to the front, they told me, oh, we don't do vehicle registration here either. And so they sent me to another DMV at 48th and O. So I had to drive clear across town to that one. And guess which location expected you to wait, right? You, you know it's going to be bad when you show up and they have a person that's directing you which line you're going to spend some time in, right? And then they have those things where you have to kind of uh, weave through and there's a bunch of people and nobody's happy at the DMV. And you wait there forever until you finally get to an enthusiastic DMV employee and then you forget your license in your car, right? And so this is, this is the life of waiting, Waiting is a part of life. So Timex, they recently did a survey, and they found that people spend an average of 32 minutes waiting whenever they visit a doctor. They spend an average of 28 minutes uh, waiting in security lines. 
And this one is funny to me. People spend an average of 21 minutes waiting for a significant other to get ready um, when they want to go out. <laughs> People spend 13 hours per year waiting, to hold, uh, waiting on hold for a customer service representative. They spend 38 hours each year waiting in traffic. And some of us are waiting longer than others to get into the Christmas season. You're waiting to buy your Christmas gifts. There's a, there's a chart here that shows what percentage of Americans wait to shop until December. And so people who wait to shop in 2023, only 10% of you said that you would wait until December to do your Christmas gifts. 50% of you, a whopping 50%, said that they would do their Christmas shopping in October or earlier. Who are you people? <laughs> Actually, uh, who am I kidding? My, my wife does all of the shopping in our house. The only gift I have to buy is for her, and it stresses me out. So um, I am really blessed. My wife is amazing. Um, but some of you, I love this chart because some of you, there's a 2% and a 1% in January. Some of you are trendsetters, you know? Like, we, we know that the rest of the world is going to give gifts and buy gifts in December, but we're going to wait till January. Uh, we don't care what the date says. So I, I love that. But the reality is, today, some of you are probably waiting on more serious things. And Advent is a season of waiting. Some of us maybe are waiting for a relationship to be better. It's broken. We're waiting for restoration. Maybe we're waiting for broken health to be restored. Maybe we're waiting for a broken world to be at peace. And so what is it that you are waiting for? What have you been praying to God for that you're waiting for his response? There is um, one prayer that I have prayed more than any other over the last 20 years. And it's one prayer that I'm still waiting on God to answer. It's God, please save my brother's soul. God, please show my brother that, that you exist and, and that you care about him. God, please show my brother how much you love him. Allow my brother to spend eternity with you. It's 20 years and I'm still waiting. Now, if I was God, this seems like a prayer that I would want to answer, right? And God has his reasons for not answering, and my brother has his reasons for not believing. And But I keep praying. Why? Well, because God invites us to, and I still have hope. Though I am weary, and sometimes I wonder if I should just give up, I rejoice in God, and I want my brother to as well. And God has responded to so many of my prayers over the years. Sometimes he says yes, sometimes it's a pretty clear no, but sometimes I'm still waiting for God to respond. And so in the periods of waiting, as believers, we just keep praying. We're not going to give up because we care about the person or we care about the thing that we're praying about. We also don't know God's timing. So in my case, two things are true. Number one, I love my brother, so I'm going to keep praying for him until God tells me to stop. And number two, God loves my brother more than I do. So the fact that my brother is distant from God hurts God more than it hurts me. But waiting on change is hard, isn't it? 
The ancient Israelites, they're, they're no strangers to waiting for change. They waited to get out of Egypt. They waited to get out of the wilderness and enter the promised land. And I've got a brief timeline of ancient Israel after that. So starting around 1300 BC, there was a period of the judges, about 400 years. So there was, um, there was Gideon, Samson, Deborah, Samuel. And then after that, there is the United Kingdom. And so the people all begged God to give them a king. And they, they were supposed to be a nation of, of holy priests that only had God as their king. But instead, they rebelled and asked God for a king. So God gives them one in Saul. And Saul ruled, David ruled, Solomon ruled for 120 years. And the kingdom was united. And then Solomon's son, Rehoboam, split the kingdom he didn't want to, but the kingdom was split into 10 tribes of Israel and two tribes um, in, in the southern kingdom. So the northern kingdom had 10 tribes, southern kingdom had two. Judah and Benjamin were in the southern for a couple hundred years. So dealing with these kings and kingdoms, God says this in 2 Samuel 7, 12 to 14. This is what God promises to David. When your days are over, and you rest with your ancestors. I will raise up your offspring to succeed you, your own flesh and, flesh and blood. I will establish his kingdom. He is the one who will build a house for my name, and I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. I will be his father, and he will be my son. So after David, people were waiting for this new king to come. But they, they kept sinning, and they struggled, and they had a lot of really bad kings. And eventually Assyria comes and attacks the, the northern kingdom, and they get exiled. And then Babylon comes and attacks the southern kingdom, and they get exiled. And they both take these king, the, the nation of Israel away from the promised land. And so in exile, they couldn't wait now to go back home. And then around 700, around the 700s BC, Isaiah is a prophet, and he is prophesying to the divided kingdom. And there's war that's happening all around. These people are scared. They are scattered. They want a better life. And they're waiting for this promised king to come and make things right. Their world was broken. They were weary. And so in approximately 730 BC, Isaiah was finally given some hope by God to share with these weary Israelites. And this is what is said in Isaiah 9, 6 to 7. For to us a child is born, to us a son is given, and the government shall be upon his shoulder, and his name shall be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. Of the increase of his government and of peace there will be no end. On the throne of David and over his kingdom, to establish it and to uphold it with justice and with righteousness from this time forth and forevermore, the zeal of the Lord of hosts will do this. Finally, man, God, we've been waiting on this forever. Bring on this child who is going to sit on the throne of David, right? God, we're ready. We've, we've mostly been messing things up when we're here on our own, so we really need this king to come down and save our skin from this terrible situation. God, when do you think we can, we can expect this child to be here? Is nine months too soon? Maybe the woman is already pregnant, and we'll, we'll get to see this, this child sooner, well, okay, we can, we can wait for nine months. We can do it. I think with waiting at times, a lot of us can hold out if we know the end, right? Like w when I'm on a treadmill, which is never anyone's idea of a good time, 
Um, I, I can keep going if I know the end goal, right? All right, just five more minutes. I know I've only been on here 30 seconds, but five more minutes. I can do this. Or, or maybe you're getting close to graduation, and you think, oh, I can't wait till I graduate. It's only three more years. I can make it. We can get there. Or you're, you're at work, and you're getting close to quitting time, and you think, okay, if I can just make it another eight hours, then I can go home, right? But if we know how long we have to wait, waiting becomes easier. But the Israelites had no idea when this child was going to come. They had no idea when this prophecy would be fulfilled. And every single person who heard this prophecy in Isaiah's time died. And the prophecy is left unfulfilled. A hundred years pass, 200 years pass, 300 years pass, and the Israelites were starting to return to the promised land from, uh, back to Jerusalem from exile. And the prophecy is still unfulfilled. And at this point, you have to start to wonder, is God really interested in keeping his promise? Does he really answer prayers? Does he really care? Did he forget about this promise that he made? God, our life is still broken here. We could still really use that promise, King. Remember when you said you would do that? Now, imagine living in 400 BC, and and your ancestors have carefully handed down scripture, and and you know the prophecy about a future king that's going to rule on David's throne. And so every, every one of David's relatives, you kind of give the side eye and think, maybe that's going to be the one. Is that guy going to be the, the new king? Who's going to be the, the heir to David's throne? And this happens over and over, literally for hundreds of years. There's a 400-year period from the Old Testament to the New Testament. From the last word of the minor prophet to the first word of the Gospels, it's 400 years, which is a ton of waiting. And it felt like complete silence, I'm sure, for many of them. Because no prophets appeared, the word of God was not spoken, and people were starting to doubt and get confused. But then this happens in Luke 1, 26 to 35. In the sixth month, the angel Gabriel was sent from God to a city of Galilee named Nazareth, to a virgin betrothed to a man whose name was Joseph of the house of David, and the virgin's name was Mary. And he came to her and said, Greetings, O favored one, the Lord is with you. But she was greatly troubled at the saying and tried to discern what sort of greeting this might be. And the angel said to her, Do not be afraid, Mary, for you have found favor with God. And behold, you will conceive in your womb and bear a son, and you shall call his name Jesus. He will be great and will be called the Son of the Most High. And the Lord God will give to him the throne of his father David. He will reign over the house of Jacob forever, and of his kingdom there will be no end. And Mary said to the angel, How will this be, since I am a virgin? And the angel answered her, The Holy Spirit will come upon you, and the power of the Most High will overshadow you. Therefore, the child will be born, will be called Holy, the Son of God. Now, if we look at when God gave this promise to David, when he said, There's going to be someone from your line who's going to sit on the throne forever, or I'm going to be a father to them, and they will be a son to me. From that moment to when this happens in Luke chapter 1, that time period is a thousand years, around a thousand years, a thousand years of waiting. So today that would be like hearing a prophecy in the year um, 123, 1023, and seeing that prophecy come true today in 2023. And obviously the world looked much different 
in 1023 than it does now. And that's just the Israelites' time period that they had to wait. The triune God and the host of angels, they've been patiently waiting for even longer. And who is the first person that is finally revealed, finally told that this prophecy is happening, it is coming true? Does he tell a king, a high-ranking religious leader, a well-respected member of the Jewish council, a prominent member of society, maybe a famous person in the city of Jerusalem? All of those would make sense. No, God tells a young woman named Mary. She's the first to find out. Now, this woman has no power. She has no money. She has no fame. She has no authority. She's from a tiny town, a podunk town. She's not from Jerusalem. She's done nothing notable in her entire life up to this point. And in a patriarchal society, as a young woman, she's just simply not very valuable in the eyes of society. But to God... She is precious in his sight. He calls her favored one. Now, can you imagine living in obscurity as as Mary was, just going about your day, looking forward to your wedding, not really expecting anything extraordinary to happen to you ever in your entire life. And then this angel Gabriel shows up and says, greetings, O favored one, the Lord is with you. Now, now the text after this said that she is greatly troubled by this saying, as, as she should be. Because anytime an angel shows up in Scripture and opens the eyes of the person so they can actually see the presence of this angel, there's always fear. And usually the angel has to settle people down and say something like, fear not. And, and so if you struggle with the, the reality of the spiritual world, we can have a conversation about it later. But following Scripture, we often see that spiritual things happen. And These things happen all the time in this spiritual world. There are spiritual beings, there are angels and demons that our eyes can't see. But when God opens our eyes to see them, we just don't have a category in our minds to comprehend what is in front of us. So Gabriel is the first angel that Mary ever saw. And angels are these incredible beings of power. In the end times, they go to war. So they're not these, these cute, chubby little kids with wings that we see in Renaissance paintings. These are immense beings that are often terrifying when they reveal themselves, when people can see them. So so Mary was right to be afraid and troubled by Gabriel at first. But I wonder also if Mary was troubled when Gabriel called her, O favored one. And she may have thought, what have I done to be called O favored one? I don't feel very favored. I'm young, I haven't done much, I'm, I'm just trying to make it to my wedding without a hitch. Who am I that you would call me, O favored one? But on the other side of it, how encouraged much must she have felt? Like, wow, God, you see me. Like, I don't feel like I'm anyone of importance, and I didn't do anything to earn your favor, and yet here you are calling me favored one. In Revelation 2.17, Jesus says that he will give a new name, to those who endure and overcome and love him and follow him to the end. And it's a name that's unique to each person, and they will know what it is. And so to the world, this young woman from Galilee is known as Mary, but to God, she is first greeted and referred to by a different title. She is known as O Favored One. But God is is teaching us something through this. First, I think he's teaching us that he sees us. You, you may have times when you feel like God doesn't see what's going on 
in my world. He doesn't know. But God knew exactly what was happening to this young woman in a, in a random town in, middle, in the Middle East. God knows and he sees what is happening. Second, I, I think the world likes to look at us one way, but God looks at us very differently. He's going to greet you with a new title. And it's not going to be based on anything that you've ever done, but it's going to be entirely based on how he made you and how he has blessed you and created you. Third, God doesn't really seem to be cared at all about people who are in positions of power or wealth or authority. He loves using people that humanity forgot or overlooked. Mary's ancestor David wasn't even on the radar to be king. And, and all of his brothers, they looked the part, but David was off with the sheep. It was a lowly position. And, th- and now here, a thousand years later, one of his descendants is the least likely person to be chosen to hear this message, and yet God gives it to her. So the last thing I want us to focus on today that I think we can learn from the interaction between God and Mary is this ancient Hebrew concept. And it's a concept that involves completeness and tranquility and peace. The, angel, the, the ancient Hebrews, they used this one word to describe peace and wholeness and perfect contentment and blessing. And that word is shalom. So if you watch The Chosen, uh, there are people who, who will often use that word as a greeting, and sometimes they'll say it on the Sabbath. They'll say um, Shabbat Shalom. And, and this, is a, this is a complete peace. Shalom is often associated with peace, and rightly so. But the meaning of shalom is more than just the absence of conflict. The type of peace that we're referring to here, it goes, it goes beyond that. It has to do with wholeness, as in there's nothing missing as in you are fulfilled, you are complete, you are whole. There is no part that is broken, no part that is disrupted. There is shalom in mind and body and soul. And God is the only one who is capable of providing this completeness, this completeness, this wholeness, this tranquility of peace in shalom. But there were, they, they had ancient law codes, the Israelites did, in order for them to try to have shalom with one another. So their goal was to have shalom with God and shalom with people, to have perfect peace and wholeness with God, perfect peace and wholeness with people. And so in in ancient Israel, if your livestock wandered into another person's field and that livestock did a bunch of damage, the other person no longer has shalom with you. There is brokenness in that relationship that needs to be restored. And so these ancient law codes were designed to help heal the brokenness and restore shalom. And then starting with Adam and Eve, every human being has broken shalom with God. Where there is sin, there is no peace. Sin is a disruptor. Sin does violence to shalom. So the troubles of this world also can become a disruptor. When we think about all of the the things and desires and wants of this world, it can separate us and distract us from God. Satan is also a disruptor. He does violence to us. He seeks to distract us from God and so that our shalom with him will be broken. And this cycle of brokenness is painful. And man, you can feel it, right? There's, There's something inside of us that just feels off when shalom is absent. When When I do something that upsets my wife, our shalom is off, and I know it, and my wife knows it, 
and when other people do something that upsets us, the, the shalom between us is off. And so we have to do something to restore that relationship because our relationship is changed and altered until shalom is restored. So in the same way, our relationship with God is altered until shalom is restored. Before Christ, you had to offer all of these sacrifices in order to restore peace between you and God. So just like the livestock damaging another person's field and disrupting the peace between you and your neighbor, our sin damages our relationship with God. So you have to pay for the damage done of the livestock to your neighbor's field. But before Christ, people had to pay for the damage done by their sin to their relationship with God by this complicated sacrificial system. But they didn't retain their sense of shalom or peace with God for very long. And eventually, people got tired of doing it. They were weary. And if you read the Minor Prophets, God gets tired of them sacrificing. These people were just going through the motions. They weren't even attempting to connect with God through this sacrificial system. And God knows all of this is going to happen, and he knows what he has to do. Because the people are never going to reconcile themselves to God on their own. No amount of sacrifice, no amount of good work was going to cover the damages of sin. It's just not possible. Shalom between God and his people had to be restored. And, and God knows he's got to be the one to do it. And so he doesn't just send some representative to make things right. He could have sent an angel maybe to restore things. But God doesn't because he is the only one capable of making things right. God himself, in the form of Jesus, the Son, had to come to the earth so that there could be peace. So Jesus is that foretold child. He is the wonderful counselor, the mighty God, the Prince of Peace. And Jesus brings peace between God and humanity. Jesus is our peace. He makes it possible for us to have shalom with God. He's a Prince of Peace. But... Some of you might be thinking, wait a minute, how how can Jesus be the Prince of Peace if he said, do not suppose that I came to bring peace on earth? I did not come to bring peace, but a sword. He says this in Matthew chapter 10, 34. Is Jesus talking out of two sides of his mouth here? There's a a theologian, Dr. Don Carlson, uh, who said, a text without a context is a pretext for a proof text. It's a lot of text. Anyone can quote a Bible verse out of context and just make a particular view out of of that and make a doctrine from it. Um, This is known as proof texting. But if you just read Matthew 10, 34 and nothing else, you're going to come to the conclusion that Jesus came on earth to bring a sword. But just a few chapters earlier in Matthew chapter 5, Jesus says, blessed are the peacemakers. So what gives? Which is true? Is Jesus crazy? Why is he saying what seems like two opposite things? Well, if you, if you talk to a Husker fan in October, after the Huskers won three games in a row and only needed one win to become bowl eligible, you might have heard him say, man, I'm feeling really good about this team. We've got a bright future ahead of us, and we might make a bowl game this year. A month later, you would hear the opposite of that. Man, I'm done with this team. There's no point in watching their future So if you had only heard Husker fans in October, you would think that Husker fans are optimistic about the future of the football team. If you only heard Husker fans in November, 
you would think that the opposite was true. And what changed between October and November? Turnovers, for one. Um, But context changed. In October, they won. In November, they lost. And so context is everything. And people often take Jesus out of context all the time, and it's maddening. But here's the context for Matthew chapter 10. Jesus is sending out his disciples to share the gospel, to heal the sick, to cast out demons, to minister to the lost sheep. And then he tells them this in verse 10. As you enter the house, greet it. And if the house is worthy, let your peace come upon it. But if it is not worthy, let your peace return to you. That's interesting. And then Jesus tells them that he is sending them out as sheep among wolves, and they need to be wise as serpents and innocent as doves, but they're going to be dragged into the courts and they're going to be flogged in synagogues. This is not great news for them. And then he says this, brother will deliver brother over to death and the father his child and children will rise against parents and have them put to death and you will be hated by all for my namesake, but the one who endures to the end will be saved. He tells them not to fear this difficult journey, that God cares about him. And this is what he concludes in verse 29. Are not two sparrows sold for a penny? Yet not one of them will fall to the ground outside your father's care. Even the very hairs of your head are numbered. So don't be afraid. You are worth more than many sparrows. Whoever acknowledges me before others, I will also acknowledge before my father in heaven. But whoever disowns me before others, I will disown before my father in heaven. Do not suppose that I have come to bring peace on earth. I did not come to bring peace, but a sword. For I have come to turn a man against his father, a daughter against her mother, a daughter-in-law against mother-in-law. A man's enemies will be the members of his own household. Anyone who loves their father or mother more than me is not worthy of me. Anyone who loves their son or daughter more than me is not worthy of me. Whoever does not take up their cross and follow me is not worthy of me. Whoever finds their life will lose it, and whoever loses their life for my sake will find it. That's a hard passage. And if you read Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, you're going to find out, you're going to know that Jesus fulfills the title of Prince of Peace. His message is literally filled with peace. However, not everyone is interested in his message. Not everyone wants to hear. Some of them reject the message of Jesus. And then they reject Jesus. There is a division that happens. There are the people who choose Jesus on the one side and the people who reject him on the other. Some of this division even happens in families. One brother will choose Jesus. The other will reject Jesus. One child will choose Jesus. The other will reject Jesus. And so in those days, it was dangerous to follow Jesus. And it still is. But the persecution in that time was was a constant threat Because followers of Jesus could be turned in to be beaten, flogged, or worse. And so sadly, many family members turned in their own relatives to be flogged or killed just for following Jesus. So in context, the message of Jesus, it divides households like a sword. Do you know know what else is compared to a sword? The, The Word of God. It is sharper than any two-edged sword capable of cutting through joint and marrow. The word of God cuts to the heart, and it separates. Some are going to follow it, some are not. And there is a division that happens. 
And so Jesus, in Matthew 10, he is warning his disciples that this is going to happen. You will be persecuted for following me. People are going to hate you for believing my words. And so you're going to have to choose. Are you going to follow your mom or dad or or the world or, or friends or neighbors or whoever who might be going after a false god? Or are you going to follow Jesus? And this is a hard choice, and this choice is so difficult that Jesus uses the language of the cross to describe it. Whoever does not take up their cross and follow me is not worthy of me. Wait, wait a minute, take up my cross? I mean, that sounds sounds awful. I think I liked thinking about shalom uh, much better. At the time, the disciples didn't realize that Jesus was eventually going to take up his own cross on their behalf. He didn't ask them to do something that he wasn't willing to do. So Jesus goes to the cross. He pays the sacrifice needed for shalom between God and people. Your sin and my sin was placed on him, on that cross. So when we choose to follow Jesus, our relationship now between God has finally been restored. There is peace there. There is shalom between God and I if I surrender my life to him. But surrendering our life to Jesus and following Jesus is going to cost something. It may cost you close relationships. There's countless stories of people in various countries who they choose to follow Jesus, but then they're ostracized from their family or their community. And this is the cross that they have to bear, that they have to take up. They bear the weight of the decision of following Christ. Now, they can pray and should pray that God will give an opportunity to witness to those who don't know Christ and their family, but they have a really heavy cross to carry, and so do we. Those of us who follow Christ, Jesus says if we follow him, take up our cross. And some of us are like, all right, I can do this. Let's go. Bring it on. But then we We start to bear the weight of our cross, and it doesn't sit very well on our shoulders, and we don't like carrying it, or we think, um, God, I think this is the wrong cross for me. I I like this other person's cross a little bit better. I think you gave me the wrong one. Um, Yeah, of course I want to bear my cross and, and follow you, but I don't like this one. I don't like this cross. Can you give me a different one? And and the thing about a cross is that it's not your choice. Jesus didn't choose which cross he would be crucified on. So you might be bearing a cross right now that you don't like, and there is a cost to following Jesus. And Jesus is upfront about this, right? Like he doesn't, he doesn't hide this in the fine print. He tells them before they even go out on their journey, there's a good chance that you're going to get flogged while you do this for me. So what do we get for doing all this? sounds really hard. If we take up our cross, is, is there any reward on the other side of this? Well, ultimately, our reward is in heaven. But here on earth, we have this amazing sense where we are made right with God. And it's a sense of completeness, it's a sense of tranquility, it's a sense of purpose, and it's shalom. And it's, it gives us peace with God and it's, it's also a peace that wants us to renew our desire for peace for others. So, man, the world can be in total chaos around us, and somehow we can find this 
perfect peace. It's like God puts us in this little house in the middle of a fire, and we're content there. We're at peace. God and us, we are good. There is shalom. And remember, Jesus doesn't just tell us to take up our cross and then says, good luck to you. What he, what he does is he helps us. He says, I'm going to help you shoulder the heaviness of your burdens. And he then goes on, he goes as far as to say this, peace I leave with you. My peace I give to you. Not as this world do I give to you. Let not your hearts be troubled, neither let them be afraid. Jesus offers us the gift of peace. And not some Miss America, world peace type of peace. Not some, like, I'm going to walk on eggshells around this family member because I don't want to upset them type of peace. But this is real, lasting, perfect peace. It's the kind of peace that only a king can give in times of war. It's the kind of peace that only a creator can deliver to a messed up creation. It's the kind of peace that only a loving God can offer to a weary world. It's his peace. So Anthony wanted to close with this. And now some of you here might be dealing with some things that are robbing you of peace. There's something that's always at the forefront of your mind. You, you can't shake it. it it's, it's constantly there. It bothers you. You feel it. You feel incomplete. You aren't whole. You're lacking peace. You lack shalom. So what is that? What is that thing? What is stealing your peace? So whatever it is, I want to encourage you to write that down on, on a piece of paper. There's, there's some paper here and some pens, and there's some in your seats as well if you find one of those. And so during this last song, I want to encourage you to come up and, and place whatever that is, whatever you've written down in this box, this wrap box on the stage. Because Jesus' gift to you is his peace. So you have an opportunity to receive it to let go of the thing that is on your mind right now, to write it down and to release it to the Lord. So during this next song, I want to encourage you to come up. Maybe you need to write it, drop it into the box, release it to Jesus, receive his peace. He is our peace. Let's pray. Jesus, thank you for offering us a a gift we don't deserve, your peace. Jesus, help us when we are stuck in our own minds. We, we can't get past this thing. We can't get past whatever it is that is getting in the way. We're stuck. So God, help, help our minds. Unt untie the knots there so that we can fully love you, so that we can fully love others. God, so we can have shalom with you and shalom with others. Thank you for giving us the gift of peace and the gift of your salvation so that we could even come near to you, so that we can even have this restoration with a holy God. So God, for those of us who are hurting right now and for those of us who are dealing with really hard things, God, please speak to us right now. Please help us. Help us to see you. Help us to, to feel you and to know why it is that we are bearing the cross we are bearing. I pray all of this in Jesus' name.